Welcome back, or if it's your first time here, then thank you for joining us. This is the Doula's Guide to dot 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 with me, Meg, also known as the Dungaree Doula. It's the podcast where we talk about all things pregnancy, birth, and parenting. My aim is to share unbiased information alongside a bit of friendly chit chat to ensure that you head into parenthood feeling confident and excited for what's to come. If you're new to the podcast and would like to know more about me, then go and check out episode one for a little introduction and a big chat on hypnobirthing, and the following episodes for some great birth and parenting preparation. And if you love the podcast, you can now leave me a little tip to say thank you via buy me a coffee. The link is in the show notes. Huge thank you in advance if you do this. This episode, I'm going to be chatting all things placenta. But before I do, I wanted to quickly tell you about my free hypnobirthing taster session, which is coming up really soon if you're listening when this goes live. So on Tuesday, the 20th of June, from half past seven till half past eight, I'm going to be running a completely free hypnobirthing taster session online via Zoom. All you've got to do is sign up via Eventbrite to ensure that you get sent the Zoom link. So I'll leave the link to register in the show notes below. It'll be a really great hour. I'll be chatting about how hypnobirthing can help you prepare for birth. I'll be giving you loads of tips and tricks to utilise during your labour. And at the end, I'll reserve some time for your questions too. So please come and join me. It's online so you can join from your bed, in your PJs if you want. There's absolutely no judgement here. And yeah, hopefully I'll see you there. So let's get back on topic. We're going to chat all things placenta. So I'm going to talk you through birth in the placenta and then I'm going to talk about what you can do with it afterwards. So please do listen to the full thing because you might be thinking, well, I'd like to know how to birth the placenta, but then it's going in the bin. So no use listening to the second half of the podcast, but do bear with me because there are other options between, you know, it going in the bin and then the other extreme of putting it in a stew to eat. <laughs> so you may just end up wanting to do something else, something in between. Um, and I'll also be chatting a little bit how, about how other cultures hold the placenta, which I think is really interesting. So I don't know, maybe it's just me. <laughs> um, and I'm a freak, but I just find it really, really interesting. I just find placentas really interesting. Um, and I could talk about them all day. So let's get into it. So, so many people completely forget about the fact that the placenta has to come out as well as the baby. And many people don't realise that it doesn't come out with the baby or just have any idea what was involved in this third stage of labour. But you do have to give birth to your placenta after you've given birth to your baby. And this can take a variable amount of time. So in the second stage of labour, um, the pushing stage, your contractions become expulsive Um, for you to push your baby out right and then after that we move into the third stage of labor which also has three stages um so first up you have the uterus contracting so um the contractions begin again and this leads to the thickening of the uterine muscle which causes like a sheer force to occur between the uterus wall and the placenta that's the first bit then you have the actual separation of the placenta, which happens really slowly, um, usually from the bottom to the top until full separation occurs. So then the placenta is fully separated from the uterus wall. And then you have the expulsive stage, which is, of course, the delivery of the placenta out of the cervix, out of the vagina. And whilst all this is happening, the muscle fibres, which surround the uterus, contract too. And the mother's coagulation system is like temporarily activated to prevent any excessive bleeding from happening. So for some of us, this process might happen immediately after birth, but for most of us, there's a bit of a gap in between the second and the third stage. Usually the placenta is out within an hour after birth, but not always. So you will like hear people say, oh, you have to birth it within an hour. You don't have to. Um, Sometimes it can take longer, but usually it does come out within that first hour. 
Um, for some of us, these contractions can be a little bit painful. Some of us won't notice them at all. But I think it's really important to mention that it's not like birthing your baby again. Um, the contractions are nowhere near the intensity of the ones that you have when you birth your baby. But you may feel some after pains, some sort of niggles as your uterus contracts and starts to clamp down because your uterus begins to um, decrease in size as well. So some people don't feel anything. I didn't feel anything either time, but then I've seen some of my other clients find it quite uncomfortable. Um, if you don't like the sensations, you can request pain relief. So it's not like you can only have it for birthing your baby. You can have it for placenta as well. Some people use gas and air, or you could just ask for some paracetamol or even some codeine if it's that bad, but it, it shouldn't be that bad. So moving on, for our uterus to contract, it needs oxytocin. Um, if you've done any sort of birth preparation, you've probably heard of oxytocin. If you've listened to this podcast before, I bang on about it all the time. Um, but oxytocin... It's the hormone which stimulates our uterus to contract. So it causes the contractions that we need for birth to work. And this continues into the third stage of labour. We need more oxytocin to birth the placenta. And oxytocin is great because we have so many oxytocin receptors in our body. We have more as we prepare for labour and we can create it. And like to an extent, we can control our levels of it as well. So oxytocin is created when we feel calm, when we feel safe, when we feel really unobserved, when we don't feel like there's any sort of threat in our environment. So it thrives in a birth environment, which is a bit darker, which is really cosy, which is warm, which feels really supportive. Um, and so for us to birth the placenta efficiently, we ideally want to keep the environment the same, right? You want to keep it the same as you would have it for birth. So maybe you've got like dimmed lights, you've got some twinkly fairy lights, maybe you're chilling out in the pool, maybe you're like only surrounded by those that you love, those that you trust, like hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you're only surrounded by those that you love and trust. And what you want to do to encourage a smooth birthing of the placenta is to carry this over into what we call the golden hour. So we'll talk too much about this here because episode 13 of the podcast is all about this. Um, but if you go back and listen to that episode, if you haven't already, um, to birth the placenta, you want to keep the environment the same and full of oxytocin in this golden hour, this initial hour after your baby has been born. So keep your lights dimmed. Don't let anyone walk into your space and put like the big light on. Don't come out of that birthing bubble and start video calling all your family, letting them know that the baby is here. Like you've got loads of time to do those things. You don't need to do it straight away. You want to just soak up this initial golden hour with your baby and your partner if you have one. Um, having immediate skin to skin helps to boost our oxytocin. So bringing our babies right up onto our bare chest and initiating breastfeeding is really going to help too. And sometimes we're in a bit of a daze when we first have our babies, right? We've got them scooped upon our chest. We're just taking them in. We're smelling them, cuddling them, feeling that like pure sense of awe. You might not always remember to initiate feeding straight away and you don't have to. But if you find that your placenta hasn't come away for a period of time and you also haven't initiated breastfeeding yet, then just try and remember or have someone on hand that can remind you like this can be a really good birth partner job to give it a go. Um... And it can just be, it can be that little nudge that your uterus needs to get on with the job and to eject your placenta, right? Because breastfeeding creates loads of oxytocin. So it's really great for helping us to have a physiological third stage with birthing our placenta. If you do find that after this hour, your placenta still isn't coming away, that is fine. Um, but sometimes it just takes a bit longer. But if you have like medical professionals around, midwives, people like that, 
they might get a bit titchy, well they will get a bit titchy <laughs> around the hour mark and they'll want to start to try and sway you towards maybe having the injection to get it out or maybe just to start trying other things. Um, and like I said, there are other things you can do. You could just try moving around a bit, moving position. So if you've been sat in the pool for a while, maybe you just need gravity on your side. So getting up and out of the pool can help. Um, if you're like laid on the bed, you might want to waddle over to the toilet. Sitting down on the toilet in that sort of upright forward with an open position can really help too. But again, this is your choice. You're well within your right to wait as long as you feel comfortable for your, like, for your placenta to be born. Um, maybe all you need is for everyone to just get out of the room so that you can get back to feeling safe and unobserved and that's fine too. Boot everyone out for like a few minutes and see if that helps as well. So doing this, waiting to birth our placenta without any medical interference is known as having a physiological third stage of labour and it comes with benefits. Um, it allows our hormones to flow as intended. So we mentioned oxytocin flowing and at birth, mother's oxytocin levels peak. So this alongside feeding our baby, remaining in this calm environment creates these really high levels of oxytocin, ensuring that the uterus contra uterine contractions are created and that helps our um, uterus to clamp back down, which can prevent postpartum hemorrhage and get back to its sort of regular size more efficiently. These hormones also kickstart mother and baby's bond um, and they mix with sort of other hormones that are present at birth such as prolactin. So prolactin's commonly referred to as the mothering hormone. Um, so this with that mix of huge oxytocin gives mothers like the strength that they need to raise and protect their babies. It's like sort of kickstarting the mother's survival instinct for the child. So if you've had a physiological labour, your chances of having a physiological third stage are really really good like why would you start intervening at this point there's not really any need right but there is an alternative that is increasingly being pushed upon those having their babies and we refer to this as active management of the third stage so this is where an injection of synthetic oxytocin is given to speed up the process um the process of these contractions and to get the placenta out quicker and for some of you, you might think this sounds great. Like get that placenta out really quickly. And then the whole thing is done and dusted. Like why would we wait? And I do, I understand that. I get why a lot of people feel this way. And um, labour can be long and it can be tiring. And if there's an option to get that final bit over and done with, then like why wouldn't you wait? But there are some reasons why it might not be the best choice. But I'm going to pause here and just say that just like anything, it is your choice. And that's the point of these podcasts. It's, it's so you can get, a well-rounded view of your options and choose the one that resonates most with your wants and your needs and if active management having the injection sounds like the best thing for you then you know no shame in that have the injection that's fine so in active management of the third stage of labor you have uh, administration of a uterotonic drug either before with or immediately after the birth of your baby so in the uk this is given as an injection of synthetic oxytocin you then have cord clamping and cutting, which may mean that your baby doesn't receive their full blood quota because around 30% of your baby's blood is still transferring from your placenta into your baby after they're born. So if you're cutting and clamping the cord before all of that blood has gone through, then you're depriving your baby of some of their blood. And then you have cord traction, which is where your midwife will pull on the cord while pushing down on your fundus so your fundus is the top bit of your uterus to encourage it to come out even quicker. So the reason why this is done is because it's suggested that the administration of a uterotonic will reduce bleeding and the risk of severe hemorrhage. And the NICE guidelines, they even agree with this. So the NICE guidelines state, 
your midwife should discuss these options with you again in the early stage of labour. You should be advised to have active management of the third stage, but should also be asked about your preferences. So they're just kind of pushing it on everybody regardless. There are also risks to your baby of having active management, but these mainly stem from delayed cord clamping. I'm not going to chat about this now because I'm planning a full episode on this soon, but I'm sure you can put two and two together and realise that if your baby doesn't receive their full blood quota, then they're not going to be in their best shape, right, if they're deprived of like up to 30% of their blood. There are risks of cord traction, quite big risk of cord traction. So they're pulling on the cord um, that bit. There's a really big risk of having retained placenta, which is where bits of the placenta stay attached to the uterus wall. And that's actually one of the biggest causes of postpartum hemorrhage. So the reason we're giving this injection as a routine is to prevent postpartum hemorrhage. But then you're almost counteracting that by pulling on the cord, which can cause retained placenta and hemorrhage and or infection and always requires a trip to surgery for manual removal of the bits that are retained. I mean, of course, you could always ask for mixed management. So mixed management is when you just have the injection without the pulling of the cord. But you'd have to speak to your trust um, about that to ensure that it's fully understood um, and to make sure that you understand more about like the risks and the benefits of this happening and make sure that this is actually going to happen. So you're not having to have a discussion about it or an argument about it during labour itself. If, if this is the path that you want to go down you want to speak to your midwife about it in advance if you want to do mixed management and to ensure that they're happy to do that and your wishes will be respected on the day. I think what's helpful to think about here is what would actually help us to make a decision is having a nuanced discussion around the actual risk of having a postpartum hemorrhage. So what are the actual statistics? So 13 out of 1,000 people having actively managed their stage will have a postpartum hemorrhage. So that's 1.3% of people giving birth on average will have a postpartum hemorrhage after having active management, so after having the injection. And then 29 out of 1,000 people having a physiological third stage will have a postpartum hemorrhage. So that's 2.9% of people giving birth and just waiting for their placenta to be born will have a postpartum hemorrhage. So 1.3% of people having active management will have a PPH, postpartum hemorrhage. 2.9% of people giving birth and having a physiological third stage will have a postpartum hemorrhage. So this is a very small increase, right, from 1.3% to 2.9%. These are both really small numbers. And yet the NICE guidelines have decided that it is justified to actively manage everyone as a blanket policy based on very small numbers. So this is where your personal view of risk needs to come into play because it's not really for the hospital to state that you need to have active management because it's too risky. Only you can decide that. I know for a lot of us, having only a 2.9% chance of having a postpartum hemorrhage is not risky enough at all for us to accept an injection of synthetic oxytocin, which comes with its own risks. But for some of us, it absolutely might be. For some of us, we might think that we'd prefer to take those risks of the injection so that our risk of postpartum hemorrhage decreases down to just 1.3%. And if that's what feels right for you, then that's what feels, then yeah, do it. That's what feels right for you. Like you can't go by what I'd suggest, nor what the hospital suggests, what your partner suggests. It's about what you feel is right for you and your labour. There are three 
uh, final things that I quickly want to mention here before I move on to the more fun bit where we're going to talk about what you can do with your placenta. Um, So let me just quickly try and get through these three points. So the first is that the researchers actually found that yes, there would be one fewer severe postpartum hemorrhage for every 66 women who had active management, but conversely, there would be one woman who had to return to hospital because of bleeding for every 65 women who had active management. So we're rescuing one in every 66 from a postpartum hemorrhage, but we're causing one in every 65 to return to the hospital with a secondary postpartum hemorrhage out of every 65 women who have active management. So we're decreasing that small risk of postpartum hemorrhage, but we're increasing the risk of being readmitted to hospital with heavy bleeding after 24 hours have passed, which is classed as a secondary postpartum hemorrhage. And I think that's really important to take into consideration because you may never have even had a postpartum hemorrhage to start with, but then you might have this injection just in case, and it could cause you to have a secondary postpartum hemorrhage. So... Yeah, no one's telling you about that bit, right? They're just telling you about the benefits of stopping an immediate postpartum hemorrhage. The next thing I wanted to mention is that this drug can be given at any time after you've birthed the placenta. So if you do seem to be losing a lot of blood, if you do seem to be having a postpartum hemorrhage, it will be given then. So if you want to have a physiological placenta delivery, but you're worried about that small what if, that small chance of having a postpartum hemorrhage, You can be given the drug at any time if that happens. If it seems like your bleeding is too heavy and it needs to be stopped, it's not only effective having it in the first instance, it's also used to manage a postpartum hemorrhage. So it's not all or nothing. If you don't want it as a preventative measure, but you end up needing it, it will be given to you there and then. And this is wherever you birth as well. So they obviously have it in the hospital and the birth centre, but midwives, they can bring it to home births too, which is a big weight off a lot of people's shoulders. And of course, you can change your mind at any time too. Like if you desperately want and plan for a physiological third stage, but that in the moment you decide you'd prefer active management, that's fine. Like I said, like they'll have the the drugs with them. They'll have the injections with them wherever you decide to give birth, right? So it's not all or nothing. You can change your mind. Like with anything in your birth plan, you can change your mind at any point. And then the last thing that I really wanted to touch on quickly because again this is going to be a whole podcast episode in itself but there are certain things which increase the risk of postpartum hemorrhage so instead of sort of relying on the injection you might want to first look into the things that increase the risk of postpartum hemorrhage and try and avoid those things instead and that's things like having an induction having an injection greatly increases the risk of postpartum hemorrhage things like birthing on our back with an epidural things like assisted delivery cesarean sections all of these things having a really big baby all these things increase the risk of postpartum hemorrhage if none of these things are happening to you the risk is small right the risk is small so think about all of that I know that's quite a lot to think about but have a think about all of those things And work out how you'd like to deliver your placenta. You don't have to follow the nice guidelines. You don't have to follow hospital policy. You don't have to follow what your partner wants to do, what I want to do. Think about it from your point of view. What feels right? What feels safest for your circumstances? So we're going to move on to talking about the different things that you can do with your placenta. But to bridge that gap, 
because we've been talking about postpartum hemorrhage and we're about to talk about things like ingesting the placenta, I thought it would be interesting to mention here that a lot of people are becoming aware of this sort of, I want to say new phenomenon, but it's not new at all. It's really old, um, but it's new in the sense that we've only just started talking about it again. Phenomenon for helping postpartum hemorrhage if it happens by popping a piece of the placenta into your cheek. So yeah, (laughs) sounds really strange, doesn't it? But basically, if you're having a postpartum hemorrhage and the placenta is out at this point, then you can take a little 10 pence piece bit of the placenta, cut it off, pop it in between your cheek and your gum, pop it against your gum, and the hormones within it can stop a postpartum hemorrhage. So there is no solid research on this as far as I can see basically because who's funding it (laughs) no one's funding that because no one gets any money out of the outcomes right if it's found that this works like I don't know 90% of the time 100% of the time like big farmers gonna lose a lot of money because we're all just gonna be popping placenta in people's cheeks (laughs) but it's like a really old-fashioned thing they would use this sort of thing a link to some articles about it in the show notes because it's really really interesting and even if it's not something you fancy doing yourself it's just quite fascinating, isn't it? But yeah, there are loads and loads of stories out there in the modern day, more so in America, of um, midwives who have done this or people who have free birthed who have done this when they've been yeah bleeding heavily, having a postpartum hemorrhage and they've popped some placenta in between their cheek and their gum and found that it has stopped the bleeding. It's incredible, right? Really, yeah, really, really cool. So yeah, I'd encourage you to read some more on that if you're interested. So obviously, things that you can do with your placenta, you can just get rid of it. So especially if you're in the hospital, it will just get disposed of. So you won't even really get to see it, they'll just take it away. Um, If you do want to see it, it's important that you tell them, so have it on your birth plan and tell them that you want to see it before they get rid of it, even if you're not planning on taking it home. It's worth having a look at, right? It's this magical organ that you've grown from scratch that has kept your baby alive, kept them safe for the past nine or ten months. So it's pretty cool to look at it. And if you want to do this, the midwives will happily put it, you know, on a towel, something like that next to you and explain what all the different bits are, explain which bit was connected to you and explain where the veins are, the umbilical cords inserted, all things like that. They can show you all of that stuff. And so definitely make sure you have it on your plan if you want to see it, because it's really cool. Like, why would you not want to? And then if you don't want to take it home, don't take it home. Like, that's absolutely fine. They can just chuck it in the waste and same if you're giving birth at home if you don't want it you can obviously see it but then they can just take it with them and get rid of it that's absolutely fine whatever you want to do with it but I'd encourage having a look at it because it's quite cool then what seems to be I would say the most common thing to do with your placenta for people who do keep it is to bury it um and again this is something that has been going on for since the dawn of time really like so many different cultures and countries have different rituals around burying the placenta so I've recently read this really cool book called Placenta the Forgotten Chakra by Robin Lim and in that book she talks a lot about the way that different cultures regard their placenta and what they do with it and so many different sort of traditions and cultures and countries they bury their placenta so I'm going to read you out a couple of them because yeah I just find it quite interesting um so in parts of Vietnam the placenta is buried under the mother's bed um in Cambodia a spiky plant is placed over the burial site to ward off evil spirits 
um, and dogs because they believe that it's the globe of the origin of the soul. Um, in in Costa Rica, the midwife will wrap the placenta in paper and bury it in a dry hole with ashes from the fire that's been cooking. Um, for Mayan people, they have a very religious tradition and that roots them to the earth at the moment of birth. So when a child is born, a Mayan child is born, their placenta will be buried in the ground as part of a big religious ritual. And this holds a special meaning where the individual is planted in the ground to root them to their Mayan identity, which is really lovely, right? <laughs> in Turkey, I don't know if this still happens now. It doesn't say when this is from, but it says Turkish parents will bury the placenta. Um, if they wish for their child to be a Muslim, they bury the cord in the courtyard of a mosque. If they want the child to be well-educated, they might throw the cord over a schoolyard wall. Some Native American um, traditions encourage the baby's grandmother to bury their newborn's grandchild, um, their newborn grandchild's placenta and umbilical cord at a special place that represents their dream for the child. And it also mentions how in um, old Hawaii, the father of the baby would bring the placenta to the ocean and leave it cradled in a hole in the volcanic stone by the sea so that the sacred organ could go home to her mother ocean. So lots of people traditionally have buried their placenta. And I think that that's definitely something that's carried through to modern day. I would say, obviously, it's not the majority anymore. The majority of people, especially here in the UK, are just disposing of their placenta. But from my experience as a doula, what I've heard from other doulas, other hypnobirthing teachers, a lot of clients, a lot of people are returning to this tradition of burying their placenta in the ground. Um, you could do it as a sort of ritual. You could do it because it's sort of a cultural thing or you could just do it because you like the idea of it sometimes people I've heard people say that they do it because they wish for their children to be grounded and they feel that it makes their children grounded because it was a part of them and it grew them and so burying it into the ground returns it to the earth returns it to mother nature and that just feels like the right thing to do a lot of the time people will plant it with a special plant or a tree or something like that because obviously it's good it's good for the roots of the plant Apparently, it's really, really good for growing rose bushes. And um, I've had a few clients who have planted it with a rose bush. And then that rose bush or that tree or whatever you planted it with grows alongside your child. So it's just sort of a nice thing to have. And then again, if you don't want to eat it, there are other things that you can do. Some people like to make placenta art out of it. So they will literally just imprint the placenta onto a piece of paper onto a canvas something like that they might paint it and press it down that way you can have different art and things made out of your umbilical cords some people make dream catches out of them there's all sorts of different things that you can make out of it and you can do it yourself or you can ask your doula if they can do it if they can recommend someone to do it some people have whole businesses dedicated to that stuff so if you're interested in placenta art then again give it a google and see if any of these things stand out to you because they might do and then, of course, the final thing you do is... Actually, no, it's not the final thing you can do. I was going to move on to eating it, but there's not. You can do other stuff as well. So you can get it, if you don't want to ingest it, you can get it made into all sorts of products. So you can get it made into things like balms, um, moisturiser, different things like that that are going to sort of aid you externally. So you're not ingesting them, but you're using them externally, topically, on different parts of the body. Um, I know in other cultures, um, in other countries... This is more popular than in the UK. In the UK, generally, placenta specialists a lot of the time will just make different sort of um, like pills and things like that. But I know that in different countries, it's a lot more popular to get 
different balms and things like that made and um, with all different healing properties and you can mix them with different things obviously but then yeah moving on to ingesting the placenta um so this has been practiced for generations 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 massively throughout the world and um, it's been passed down um it used to be something that some tribes just did some countries just did some cultures just did and it's kind of died out now due to the medicalization of birth basically um why why would we do it nowadays that it's just seen as medical waste and it's taken away so we don't really do it anymore but there's a lot of anecdotal benefits again there's not much research into ingesting the placenta there are pros and cons but a lot of it is anecdotal so anecdotally people say it gives them more energy say that it prevents them from suffering with mental health problems like postnatal depression and things like that there's talk of it for helping edema so swelling of the legs the feet um the hands all of those joyful places that swell up during pregnancy um it can help soothe apparently soothe the kidneys um so this is helpful for if you've had protein in your urine if you've had preeclampsia and things like that um, and in traditional Chinese medicine, it's also spoken about how it can help the mothers to breastfeed um, and can treat insufficient lactation. So, you know, if you've had a cesarean and your milk's taken a long time to come in, eat some placenta. Apparently it can help. <laughs> um, I read something recently. Um, oh, actually, it was, in, it was in that same book. It was in Placenta, the Forgotten Chakra. Um, there was a quote, and I will link where the quote is from um, because it's in this book, but it's actually from some other research. And it, it says... The most general benefit of eating the placenta, according to recent research, is that placenta and amniotic fluid contain a molecule called POEF, I want to say. It's just the initials P-O-E-F, placenta opioid enhancing factor, that modifies the activity of endogenous opioids in such a way that produces an enhancement of the natural reduction in pain that occurs shortly after and during delivery. So basically by eating your placenta, you're getting um, opioids enhancing, um, which are going to reduce the pain. So there's after pains, there's um, sort of pains of the placenta going back down, general pain that you're feeling from sort of the labour going through all of that um and that is that is research backed like it's not large-scale studies like I said these things are not often rooted in large-scale studies but there is research to suggest that that is true which again is really interesting you can eat it in different ways so like I said at the beginning you can put it in a stew if you want to put it in a stew (laughs) like some people do this I know someone who did this um but you don't have to do that. You don't have to take it home and cook it yourself. You can give it to, you can give a small bit to a placenta specialist. They can make it into a tincture. They can make it into a powder. They can make you placenta smoothies where they pop a little bit in with a load of different fruit and some juice and some water and they blend it all up for you. Um, or you can get it made into the placenta pills, which is encapsulation, which is what you probably hear about most often in this country. That's what most placenta people who do placenta encapsulation do. They make it into pills and you can take I'm not sure actually I'm not sure how many you're recommended to take a day maybe it's different for different people different circumstances um if you want to look into any of this sort of stuff just give it a google and see what's in your area so for example I'm in Leeds and I am not a placenta like encapsulator I don't do that like I've had clients who have wanted it in smoothies and stuff like that I can do that that's fine but I, I'm not licensed to encapsulate it. But you just Google it, placenta encapsulation in Leeds, and see who comes up. There's a woman in Leeds who's really great. 
I won't shout her out because I realise that that's quite a niche, <laughs> the small percentage of people who listen. Um, but yeah, give it a Google, find out who's out there. I know some great ones up and down the country, some fellow doulas, some people who do it just as their business. Um, it's really interesting. It's something that I would like to definitely look into offering in the future. But yeah, not just the encapsulation. I'd like to be able to offer it in a way that encompasses other things like the balms and the tinctures and things like that because it seems like there's different benefits to different things and I will leave like I said some further reading um, in this in the show notes so do go and check it out if you want to know but yeah it's, it's hard to say because so much of the research is completely anecdotal and we just don't know. The final thing I want to talk about before we round off this podcast is lotus birth. If you've never heard of a lotus birth, a lotus birth is where you have your baby and then if you have a full lotus birth, you just simply do not cut the cord. You wait until it detaches itself, which means that you carry the placenta around with your baby indefinitely. <laughs> not really, but until until it detaches itself, which generally takes three to ten days. Um, you're probably thinking that sounds like a massive hassle or that sounds like it might get really smelly and I mean you can make it as much of a sort of a hassle as you want basically and you can prevent it from smelling by using herbs and salts so what most people do they have a lotus birth they will get like a special bag to wrap it in so you can buy sets where you get the herbs and the bags or you can just use your own and you would cover it in herbs maybe some rosemary is meant to be really good you'd cover it in some salts you would wrap it up in some fabric in a nice little bag in a little pouch and then you just carry the placenta around with the baby until it detaches um, after a couple of days, the placenta, will, the placenta, the cord will go really hard and quite brittle, but generally it won't snap, it will wait um, until it detaches from your baby's belly button. Um, if you Google pictures of lotus birth babies, they're, they're really beautiful actually. You might think that that's a bit weird, but <laughs> if you have a look at it, it's really nice. I know a couple of people who have done it, and if I was going to have another baby, I think it would be my plan. I think I would have a lotus birth and then I would bury it but I'm probably not going to have more babies. But if I did, I would, yeah, I've really, really come around to the lotus birth idea. And after seeing a client do it last year as well, I realised just how lovely it is and how, how gentle a transition it is for your baby as they come into the air to be able to stay connected to their placenta. And like I said, it, it can probably be quite cumbersome, but if you're thinking it's only going to be for at maximum 10 days, you're not doing much, hopefully you're not doing much in those 10 days after birth anyway. Like you want to be just at home, chilling out, spending time in your bed. Maybe you go down to the sofa, maybe at a push if it's the summer, you sit in the garden. But you you probably don't want to be going around for walks in this time. You don't want to have loads of visitors. Um, if you do want to have visitors, you know, they might not want to hold your baby if the percent is attached, but that's fine because it's really overstimulating for newborns to be passed around loads of visitors anyway. So it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world if they have to wait a few days to carry them. But it's in a bag. It's all wrapped up. It's not like they're having to touch like the bloody fleshy placenta, are they? So, yeah, it's something to think about. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of people do it because, yeah, they think it's a very gentle transition. It's not necessarily something that has like got a long tradition or a long history. The first sort of people we know of doing it was someone who was called, her last name was Lotus. I think I'm sure that's what it is. Her last name was Lotus. That's why it's called Lotus Beth. And um, it was in the 70s and she just did it. She just felt like it was the right thing to do. And it has caught on 
a little bit. I mean, it's not caught on massively, obviously. There's not loads of people doing it. You don't see loads of babies with their placentas attached, but it's caught on a bit and it's becoming more popular as more people become aware of it. So yeah, have a Google of Lotus Birth Babies and um, you'll see, you'll see it's quite sweet. (laughs) And so that concludes this episode on placentas. I hope it's been a helpful and interesting listen for you. Um, If you'd like to discuss this topic, placentas in general, or perhaps just the third stage of labour, or of course any other aspect of your pregnancy and birth in more detail than booking for a power hour with me, a one-off hour session to get clarity on your circumstances for just £30. So I'll pop the info in the show notes. And whilst you're there, remember to sign up for the free taster session too. If you have any more questions, come hang out on Instagram where I'm at the Dungaree Doula and please do let me know if you enjoyed the episode. Do be sure to check out the show notes for all the other links. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do stick around. Like, follow and subscribe or leave a little review if you don't mind because it's so, so helpful for getting my podcast out there in front of other people. Speak soon. See you next week. Bye.